This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy, the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. C4 Smart Energy. Stay focused. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx Service Guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Good morning, I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. He was the force behind more than 100 motion pictures, and he's won dozens of Academy Awards. But Harvey Weinstein was also accused by more than 100 women of sexual assault or harassment. In 2017, after years of rumors, Several women finally went public about Weinstein's abuses, which led to criminal charges, a conviction, and of course, the Me Too movement. Now, writer Ken Aletta is taking a closer look at Harvey Weinstein, attempting to understand how a stellar filmmaker came to such a dark Hollywood ending. He's talking with Leslie Stahl. How did an Academy Award-winning film producer end up a convicted sex offender? One journalist spent years trying to figure it out. I was trying in a biography to be inside his head and, and trying to show how Harvey was viewing the world as it's crumbling around him. You don't think he feels any remorse? I don't know. I, I, I think that Harvey, Harvey's in denial. A life re-examined coming up on Sunday morning. We've all noticed the price of just about everything seems to be rising. 
But is this simply about supply and demand, or is something a little more insidious at work here? We asked David Pogue to tell us all about greedflation. $12 at the grocery store. Mm -hmm. $12 for cream. Like, that's crazy! Most economists blame our crazy inflation on underwhelming supply and overheated demand. But there may be something sneakier going on. Which is corporations using inflation as a cover for increasing profits and prices. Ahead on Sunday morning, rising costs are taking a bite out of every business. The question is, is it inflation or greedflation? It's a new chapter for Delia Owens' blockbuster 2018 novel, Where the Crawdads Sing. Lee Cowan will tell us all about it. Hello? Hey, Crawdads is back at number one. <laughs> Where the Crawdads Sing has been on the bestseller list for more than three straight years. That's a record that's attracting a lot of high wattage attention. It just must be so surreal. It is. Now, Reese Witherspoon has produced the movie version of that popular novel. You can't live alone in the marsh forever. Watch me. Just to put all the readers at ease, the movie stays with the story. Well, a blockbuster book there she is. be one at the box office, too, later on Sunday morning. With Seth Doan, we'll enjoy a stay at Rome's prestigious American Academy. Aaron Moriarty has an inspiring tale of second chances. Commentary from a physician on the front lines of our gun wars. Some picks for summer reading and more on a Sunday morning for the 10th of July, 2022. And we'll be back after this. Our economy has been battered by a pandemic, a breakdown in the supply chain, and a war. So is that why we're seeing sky-high inflation? Or is a little greed sprinkled on top? Sounds like a question for our David Pogue. How much for a single scoop of uh, the cherry? Right now it's a $5. It used to be $4.50. That's outrageous! I know, Just I know. At Sugar Hill Creamery in Harlem, the handmade ice cream will cost you more these days because, according to owner Petrushka Basin Larson, everything costs her more. Like everything is going up from dairy, so milk and cream, to like just our cups. Costs me more to get the cups here than it is for the cups. Do you know what I'm saying? The freight charges are gastronomical. No matter what business you're in, costs are way up for all kinds of reasons. For Daryush Petruski's vodka company. The glass itself, depending on the size of the bottle, is up 17%, uh, up to 25% for the larger size bottles. Caroline Morris's gift shop. My vendors, where they might have paid $3,000 for a container for shipping, are now paying $30,000. Al Underwood's reading glasses supply. A couple years ago, there were these tariffs we got hit with. That was 10%. So what's going on? As you may recall, prices are a function of supply and demand. More demand, higher prices. We put much too much demand into the economy last year, and inevitably that was going to cause it to overheat, which it has. 
Harvard professor Larry Summers was the Treasury Secretary in the Clinton administration. He predicted this year's inflation over a year ago. Within the year, we're going to be dealing with the most serious incipient inflation problem that we have faced in the last 40 years. The combination of pumping trillions and trillions and trillions of stimulus money and the Federal Reserve keeping interest rates at zero, all of that taken together was, I think, uh, inevitably going to drive the car much too fast and cause it to go off uh, the road. Then, in an unhappy coincidence, the supply went down too. The big increases in prices have much more to do with shortages. Supply and demand both way out of whack. But lately, we've been hearing about a third contributing factor. The last thing we should be thinking about is rewarding companies for exploiting the situation. Then there's a third set of arguments people make that some firms are able to somewhat opportunistically raise prices in the midst of all this chaos, given those other two factors. Ah, greedflation. Greedflation. Mike Konzel is an economist at the Roosevelt Institute. In a new study, he graphed corporate profit margins over time. Their big profit margin has gone from about 5% over the last several decades to almost 10% in the past two years. So there's been a giant jump in corporate profits over essentially during the pandemic and during the recovery. We have been so far unable to get any of these companies with record profits to speak to us for this story. I'm shocked, um, I'm shocked. <laughs> Robert Reich is a professor at Berkeley and was labor secretary in the Clinton administration. What would they say their rationale is for raising prices unduly at a time when we can least afford it? Well, they would say our obligation is to our shareholders. Uh, and that's it. So everyone agrees corporations have raised prices as high as they can get away with. But not everyone agrees that there's anything wrong with that. I wouldn't call it greedflation, quite honestly. I mean, companies are responding to what the incentives are in the market, and they have to maximize their shareholder returns. That's it. Wow. I thought that you really felt like these corporation leaders are being exploitative and, and unfair. I don't use the term unfair. It's not a matter of morality. Corporations are not people. They are going to maximize their share prices. That's what they do. But the result has been extraordinary price inflation. Or as Larry Summers puts it. Resorts in Miami charge more in the winter than they do in the summer and have larger markups. That doesn't mean they're gouging. It means that sometimes there's more demand relative to uh, supply. So I think this idea that price is being raised in the face of strong demand constitutes gouging is a real misconception. You make it sound like capitalism is working like it's supposed to. Supply and demand determine prices. Yeah, look, we have a market economy, and. We haven't found alternatives to a market economy that are better. But that doesn't mean we're helpless. See, in a perfect market economy, if you charge too much, competitors will rush in and steal your customers. But our market isn't perfect. Since uh, the 1980s, two-thirds of American industries have become more concentrated. We have more and more monopolization, more and more market power, more and more power by big companies 
to set prices. But I thought there's antitrust laws. I, had, I thought the government's supposed to protect us from that. Well, you would think so. But since the 1980s, antitrust law has become very unfashionable. So how do we rein in this wild inflation? Uh, government can and should do much more. The threat of antitrust enforcement combined with a windfall profits tax, right there you have almost enough. I think the executive branch and the Congress can make a contribution by reducing tariffs, by figuring out how to buy things more inexpensively, by increasing the supply of commodities that are in short supply. There is some good news. Gas prices have recently started to drop a little bit, and so have shipping prices. Meanwhile, analyst Mike Konzel has good news about the economy as a whole. You know, if you can look past that inflation thing. The economy is still very strong. Spending is still very strong. Job growth is still um, increasingly high, you know, with unemployment at three and a half percent. This is probably the best labor market we've had in 60 or 70 years. Are you getting anything? Now we just have to fix the inflation. Do you, do you want to pay cash or card? For ice cream entrepreneur Petrushka Bazin Larson, that day won't come soon enough. You know, it's a little harder to do business, right? Because we are hopeful that it's possible and that at the end of this, whatever that is, we'll be stronger because of it. It was an Oscar gold mine. Starting in 1993, Miramax Films was nominated for Best Picture 11 years in a row. But behind the scenes, it was a very different story. Author Ken Aletta has documented the fall of Miramax's Harvey Weinstein, and he tells Leslie Stahl all about it. The disgraced Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein is serving a 23-year prison sentence for rape and other acts of sexual assault, crimes first exposed in the New York Times. Journalist Ken Oletta tried to break that story in 2002 while working on a profile of Weinstein for the New Yorker magazine. I described his brutal behavior verbally and physically in terms of fistfights and wrestling matches with people. But I couldn't nail him on what I believed he was also guilty of, which is abusing women sexually. I couldn't get the women to talk. Would you say that catching Harvey Weinstein became an obsession with you? I had a semi-obsession. I wanted to expose the guy, sure. Semi-obsession. His semi-obsession grew, even after the guy was convicted. Now he's written a biography in which he searches for Weinstein's rosebud. How and why did one of the most respected Academy Award winners and head of Miramax Films become a reviled sex offender? So your book is like a PET scan of his psyche. So he's a human being with, with many dimensions. One dimension is that he's a violent, often vile man who, who abused people. Another dimension of Harvey Weinstein is a talented filmmaker. I mean, there are spectacular movies. There's Water for Chocolate, there's Enchanted April, Shakespeare in Love. I heard you were a poet. I mean, they're just so sensitive, and some of them are sweet. And I wonder how someone who could do those movies could at the same time be a monster. I couldn't figure it out, but if you rape and abuse over 100 women. Over 100 women? 
Since October of 2017, more than 100 women have come forward to claim that he physically abused them. I wonder if you figured out whether something happened in his childhood. What you saw in Harvey's home is Miriam Weinstein, the mother, yelled all the time, Harvey, you're fat. Harvey, stop eating that. Harvey, what are you doing? And that yelling was carried over into Miramax and Harvey's career. Weinstein addressed his own violent temper tantrums in 2002 during 12 hours of taped interviews with Oletta. He said he wanted to change. I don't want to fight with anybody. I have no desire anymore. I feel like I fought all my fights. I still get, you know, some things still outrage me. But uh, I'm trying to bite my lip, whatever they do. He could not change who he was. No, of course not. In many ways, Harvey was out of control. So you're sitting across from him. Um, did you feel intimidated? No. And the questions got a little testy, and I confronted him about the women rumors and his, his violent temper and stuff. He suddenly got up off his chair. I was seated at a small conference table. He got off his chair, and he loomed over me, standing up, and he clenched his fists. And so I, as soon as I stood up, and we're eyeing, we're face to face, Harvey did something totally surprising. He started to cry. What? He just started to cry and, and, and just bawl. Really cry? Really cry, very seriously. Through those tears, he denied assaulting his one-time assistant, Rowena Chu, calling their relationship, as he would with others, consensual. The Chu accusation is one he has consistently denied. Now, here's something you've said. There was a whole system at Miramax that propped Harvey up and enabled him to commit his sexual assaults. I think for a lot of people at Miramax who obviously saw Harvey's work and lifestyle on a daily basis, I think that they would have preferred to think as Harvey of someone who had multiple affairs, who didn't behave very well, but they didn't want to think of themselves as employed uh, by a serial rapist. But she says she was warned about being alone with him. We were told things like, wear two jackets, wear two pairs of tights if you need to. Never sit on the same sofa as Harvey. If he invites you to sit next to him, sit opposite him. Despite those precautions, Chu says Weinstein tried to rape her at the 1998 Venice Film Festival, and she narrowly escaped. Harvey typically is naked in his hotel room, or at least only semi-clad. Um, obviously, we are not. Uh, we're at work. Well, wait a minute. Rowena, you're saying that like it's normal. You're saying he got naked. I'm thinking to myself, he got naked? In the film industry, Harvey was not my first encounter with someone who tried to be naked in the office. Whoa. And then what? He just lunged? He, he attacked you? So I think it is not so much of a lunging as a process of pressure over a number of hours. So you're in a room uh, with someone who's known for his anger. You can't really scream, run screaming from the room because you're not sure what he'll do. And he probably weighs three or four times what I weigh. So there's a, 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 a situation where I'm trying to extricate myself from the room without making him angry. Ultimately, of course, there is a physical element to it where he's much bigger than me and at some point he's holding me down to a bed and I'm trying to wriggle away. A lot of people in Hollywood knew what was going on with Harvey as well. I think you call it a culture of silence. People who know or should have known that someone is doing actually criminal acts and keep silent. Don't. And that's a broad 
group of people sometimes. It's a very broad group in, of people. In, some people who worked at Merrimax and the Weinstein Company, some people who were agents in Hollywood, some people who were studio executives, mm -hmm. some people who were actors and actresses. So much of it is just simple conformity. You don't want to come out and, and accuse your you colleague. Don't want to tattle. You don't want to be a rat. Yeah. Now behind bars, Weinstein faces another criminal trial this fall in Los Angeles on nearly a dozen sex crime charges to which he has pleaded not guilty. Do you think that Harvey has any remorse? So I think it's not true remorse until he actually sees that he is deserving of what has happened to him. He is deserving of this level of uh, public censure and also of a prison sentence. Here's a guy with four assistants. He had a car that had screens, flipped down screens. He could watch movies and TV shows of his. And, and here he is today, you know, eating, you know, baked beans. Knowing he will never get out. Knowing he'll never get out. And he should know that he deserves to be in prison. And, and I don't think he does. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this, all of My Mochi's fabulous flavors like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. When it comes to picking the perfect treats for your dog, Stuart makes the choice easy by keeping it real. Real ingredients, real nutrients, real benefits. Stewart dog treats are free from additives, corn, soy, wheat, and grains. Plus, they're freeze-dried to lock in all the great nutrition and natural flavor your furry friend deserves. Stewart freeze-dried dog treats. Big, tail-wagging nutritional benefits. Available on Amazon.com today. Next stop, the American Academy in Rome. We have a postcard from Italy from our Seth Doan. Under a grand portico, just off a courtyard, about 40 or so usually gather for lunch. It's a group of mostly Americans in a setting that's distinctly Italian, framed by jasmine and fragments of Roman antiquities on the wall. More remarkable than the place, though, is the mix of people. So sitting at that lunch table? Oh, it's amazing. Um, there are architects, there are designers. We found a musicologist, a curator of antiquities, and a visual performance artist chatting away at this unique academic institution with an opera composer and Elena Past, a professor of Italian in Detroit. We watched the chef out here in the garden picking your lunch. I mean, lunch is about more than eating here, though it's very nice to eat. It is. It's about creating community amongst the fellows. It's about giving you chances to talk about your work in progress, to work through problems, but also simply to deepen the relationships you have with the people around you. 
Elena Past is a fellow here at the American Academy. She's writing a book and came to study the film stock of Italian cinema. I'm thinking about analog technology, the materials that make the 20th century legible to us, memorable to us. She's one of about 35 awarded the Rome Prize, a 10-month scholarship to come to Rome and join other artists and scholars here for a self-directed study program. But the word academy can be misleading. How do you explain this place to someone who's, who's never been here? Uh, it's hard to explain because it's very, very, very unique. Marla Stone has been here nine times in various roles, first as a fellow, now as professor advisor. I think of it as kind of Noah's Ark of creative people who are given room and board and given time and space to think and work and also to learn from each other and then throwing that all into the mix of Rome. The American Academy has evolved from its founding in 1894 as a school for architects and then archaeologists, first located at Palazzo Torlonia. It's privately funded, but follows in the spirit of academies set up by European governments. The French at Villa Medici were first in 1677, with the idea of sending promising artists and thinkers to Rome to get an education in the classics. And having time to poke around, it gives you time to find the unexpected. Next to her at lunch were composer Igor Santos and artist William Vigilongo. My overall project here has been to come and find images of the black presence in antiquity. They found similarities in their work and began collaborating, with Santos composing a musical element for Vigilongo's sculpture. You know, they were both projects that had the element of water included, and specifically fountains, right? Mm -hmm. I want people to recognize that there's a fountain in the music. Santos has recorded some of Rome's fountains as inspiration. Hear the vibrations of the water. Along with the score, his compositions can involve a digital component. And I did some light programming, let's say, to have the sound of the piano control the movement of the water. Wow, so as you play more forcefully, the, the, wa the waves pick up. Correct. We heard Santos's music carrying into the garden, not far from where Vigilongo, who usually works in Brooklyn, set up in this grand, light-filled studio. It's like a large, stately sort of mansion. The taxis drop us off at the front gate, and they're like, whoa, you know, uh, who is this person? <laughs> it is quite a property. Yes, it's a really beautiful place with also a deep history. Galileo demonstrated his telescope to the Pope in our backyard. Elizabeth Rodini is the interim director. The American Academy is really a place to foster new work, new collaborations, new ideas, and bring it back to the United States, refreshed and inspired by what they find here in Rome. Thornton Wilder wrote the Kabbalah when he was here in the 1920s. In the 50s, composer Aaron Copland and writer Ralph Ellison were fellows. And in this century, Anthony Doerr worked on All the Light We Cannot See, which won a Pulitzer. It's a place to pick a project to explore, then share. And not only around that table. How are you going to go back to your real life? Well, it's going to be hard to leave Rome and hard to leave this beautiful space. But I do really feel like an important part of everything that's happened here is taking it back and sharing it. Mm -hmm.
It's a book with an odd, if memorable, title, Where the Crawdads Sing. It's also a literary sensation. Lee Cowan spent some time with the author, Delia Owens, and the Hollywood heavyweight who's bringing her story to the big screen, producer Reese Witherspoon. You Oops. love these things, don't you? I do. <laughs> Especially when they start. You might think becoming one of the world's best-selling novelists would change a person. Our property manager wants to cut these, and I'm like, don't you dare. No, I think it's great. I love it. <laughs> Makes me feel like I'm in the bush. But not Delia Owens. Whether it's driving her ATV through the brush. Oh, it does feel good. Oh. Or wading into a river. Oh. Oh, I see a little minnow. At 73, she's the same rugged southern belle that she always was. Before her blockbuster novel, Where the Crawdads Sing, made her a literary phenom. Do you still kind of pinch yourself that this is all oh, happening? Oh, every day. I still don't believe it's happening. Yeah. What are you doing here? <laughs> Why are you, you invited us. <laughs> I mean, CBS Sunday morning in my living room. I mean, no, I still, I don't believe any of it. To this day, even Putnam, her publisher, can't really believe it. Because Crawdads has broken all kinds of records. It just spent its 166th week on the New York Times bestseller list. Hello? Hey, Crawdads is back at number one. <laughs> It holds the record for being number one for the most weeks. And this was your very first novel. First novel. <laughs> it's a journey that's attracted all kinds of famous fireflies to Delia's flame, not the least of whom is Academy Award winner Reese Witherspoon. Haven't 11 million people read this book around <gasps> the world? Or is it 12? <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's even better. <laughs> It was Witherspoon who plucked Delia out of relative obscurity back in 2018, enthusiastically adding Where the Crawdads Sing to her Hello Sunshine book club. It just blew me away. It felt like when I was reading To Kill a Mockingbird or just any sort of classic Southern literature. So when I got to meet Delia, I was like, <laughs> who are you? This is amazing. So you have to come to my horse park. Witherspoon is from Tennessee. Owens is a native of Georgia. I'm so glad you're here. Two tomboys from the South who bonded almost immediately. I grew up with women like Delia, and I sat around tables with women telling their stories, and I knew and women drinking, out. Drinking whiskey out of a teacup. Yeah. Drinking <laughs> <laughs> whiskey. Whiskey in a teacup. Sometimes in a mason jar. A Hollywood star and a best-selling author. You can probably see where this is heading. I have, like you, heard the tall tales told about the Marsh Girl. Where the Crawdads Sing, out this week, is now one of the most anticipated movies of the summer. You can't live alone in the marsh forever. Watch me. Shot along the coast of Louisiana, the film follows Owens's main character, Kaya, a young girl left to raise herself in the marshes of North Carolina. I'd been out in the marsh plenty of times with Jody, but never alone. And then she layers on this thriller element. There's a murder. There's no fingerprints on the railing. Great stuff. The marsh girl. She killed him. I would have. I would have loved it, Kaya. <laughs> you would have been a great Kaya. <laughs> I'm a little too old, but that's part of what I loved about it. Is like that's the kind of movies I want to make. I want to be like. I want to be that character. I know what to do. <laughs> Witherspoon had her hands full just producing the movie. 
So, up-and-coming British actress Daisy Edgar-Jones was cast in the role of Kaya. If you can capture the tone or the essence or the feeling that you have when you read a book, that's the main thing, really. You want me to beg for my life? I don't have it in me. I won't. I will not offer myself up. They can make their decision. It took Owens more than a decade to write Crawdads, all in her Idaho mountain retreat. That's where we first met her, back in 2019. Do you get lonely out here? <laughs> I, I do. But you I like... get so lonely sometimes I feel like I can't breathe. As a wildlife scientist, she spent years in some of the most remote parts of Africa. Being alone nourishes her, in the same way that the nature around her does, especially in a marsh. I feel at home when I'm in a place like this. Yeah. You can put me in the middle of a desert or in the middle of mountains. When I'm out away from everything else, I feel like I'm home. Her novel was born out of those same feelings. A true labor of love, she says, that's reflected in the film. They invited me to come to the set. They took me through the woods. We rounded this bend through the forest, and there's this Kaya shack on this lagoon, and it looks exactly like I wrote it in the book. There's Kaya Shack. Then they start talking, and my words come out. Am I your girlfriend now? Do you want to be? I know feathers. But the other girls don't know feathers. All right, then. <laughs> it was the most surreal. It was part real, part invented or created. And yet, it, it, that's what a movie does. You know, it was just bringing all these elements together. It was beautiful. That said, she was always anxious to get back to the things she knew. It has great molars there for chewing. Bugs and critters, all under a gentle canopy of trees. This is where Kaya would have been. This is what Kaya loved, being out in the wild, in the forest, in the among nature. Since our last visit, she traded the wintry woods of Idaho. Look at this, wow, look at that. For this, the rolling hills of North Carolina. Have deer, a lot of groundhogs, turkeys. We have bears. There's a bear along the river who has three little cubs. Really? Yes. It's an old historic horse farm. Should have three or four. Delia plans to have a few herself. To yeah. ride off and get lost in it all, where Bears or no bears, <laughs> she does her best work. Do you write out here? I, well, I didn't bring you today, but I always bring a little uh, pad and a, a paper and a pen because yes, how can you not write out here? I'm fairly sure that pavement, tarmac, hardens the heart and softens the brain. <laughs> if that sounds like she's writing her next book, well, she is. The pink ones are the 1800s. She's on her third draft. Is it harder, though? Does it's it harder like because I feel the pressure and the expectations are high. I don't want to let anybody down, and I don't know how, what are the chances of doing this again. <laughs> if you pose that question to Reese Witherspoon, however, she thinks Julia's chances are pretty good. I'm glad I only have to do this once. <laughs> now, don't say that. You don't know. Completely yep. worn out. I'm excited she's writing another book. We're going to talk in a minute. Oh. Not bad for a naturalist who never really looked for the spotlight. She'd settle for the warm glow of a campfire just about any day. And she thinks most of the rest of us probably would too. 
all the numbers, all the weeks on the, on the bestseller list, I get excited. You see me get excited. It is exciting, but that to me is not the most important part. To me, the most important part is to re write a story that means something. That connects. That connects us all together. I feel very, there are a lot of crawdads out there. <laughs> After yet another week of horrific gun violence in America, thoughts this morning from Dr. Megan Ranney, emergency physician and dean of public health at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. I am an emergency room doctor. I can tell you firsthand, the damage from an AR-15's bullet is almost indescribable. It creates gaping holes. It liquefies organs. It is rarely survivable. But as shocking and horrifying as each mass shooting is, what I see in the ER, day in and day out, are mostly handgun injuries. And these are horrible too. Suicides, domestic violence, community violence, and more. Regardless of the gun used, the way a bullet rips through a body is similar to the way gun violence tears apart our communities. Each bullet leaves a ripple effect, not just for the victim, but for their parents, their children, their siblings, and their friends. Talking to each of them is part of my job too, and it's heartbreaking. We need to start treating gun violence the same way we treat other public health crises, drunk driving, heart disease, even COVID. We can prevent gun violence before it lands people in my ER. So for all of you losing hope, here are three actions we can all take today. First, if you have a firearm in your home, that's more than 40% of us in America, make sure it's stored safely, locked up, ideally unloaded. Second, know the danger signs, depression, dementia, domestic violence, substance use, and yes, hatred. Finally, if someone you know is showing those danger signs, do everything you can to put time and distance between them and a gun while they're at risk of hurting themselves or others. I'm tired of taking care of victims and their families, but I maintain faith. This is not easy, but we can do it. It just takes all of us. How important is a second chance? Aaron Moriarty has proof that sometimes it can make all the difference in the world. Everything I know of home is captured in an image of a boy running from the police, his arms flailing unlike anything you'd expect to fly. Reginald Dwayne Betts is a poet, playwright, and performer. He's also an attorney. I was before I pulled the pistol, I kissed my mother goodnight. I told her I loved her. But when has love ever been enough? So if the word overachiever comes to mind, Beth says it's the result of another word that also describes him, felon. I haven't known you that long, but I can't even imagine that the person I know would have found himself at a shopping mall carjacking somebody. Yeah, I know it was almost like a kind of black swan event in my life. You know, nothing would have prepared me for it and nothing would have prepared me for what happened after. 
When Dwayne Betts was 16, an honor student in Maryland, he and a group of teens carjacked a vehicle. 25 years later, he still can't quite explain it. They weren't friends. The guy who gave me the gun, don't know his name now, didn't know his name then. So it was just one of these things where if it wasn't true, I wouldn't believe that it was true. Although he had no criminal history and the victims were not physically harmed, Dwayne Betts was tried as an adult and spent almost the next nine years in prison. You know, I think that was the worst part of all of it, really. You know, being 16 and having to tell your mom that you're locked up and then also having to tell her that you did it. And this is probably why I immediately started figuring out what I'm going to be in the world. You know, I planned on being an engineer, but I, I said to myself, I said, uh, nine years in prison, the only thing I'm guaranteed to have is, is paper and, and, and an ink pen. I'm going to be a writer. After a fight landed him in solitary, other inmates slipped him books. They had created a kind of underground library. Hey, yo, send me a book! He describes the moment and the sound in a one-man show he wrote. And it came. Kind of magic. The Black Poets by Delly Randall. It is how he discovered poetry. I'm in a hole. Summertime in Virginia, it's hot. I'm, I'm meeting and discovering Lucille Clifton, Sonia Sanchez, Robert Hayden, Mary Baraka. Am I right that poetry gave you a way to tell stories? And it gave me a, you know, structure. It gave me a vision. And it gave me a way to hold something in my head that I could, like, articulate in a short span of time. Betts was released when he was 24. His first book, published in 2009, was a memoir about life in prison. Three books of poetry followed, one entitled Felon, the simple word that dogs prison inmates long after their release. If you do time in prison, one of the things that you become accustomed to is people telling you what you aren't and what you can't do. You can't rent an apartment in this place because you have a felony conviction. You can't work at my job because you have a felony conviction. You can't attend my school because you have a felony conviction. But Betts was able to attend Prince George's Community College. He got a job running a bookstore, which is where he met a classmate, Therese Robertson. He said on the second date he had to tell you something that was very difficult to tell you. That's when he told me that he was just released out of prison a couple of months ago. It kind of took me aback a little bit, but um, it didn't make me look at him any differently. You didn't have second thoughts about a second date? No, actually I did. <laughs> he comes across so um, kind and gentle and kind of comes off as a nerd, but I feel bad saying that. <laughs> we were like uh, safety blankets for each other in a way. They married and supported each other through school. Dwayne got a master's degree and went on to law school at Yale. At some point, I decided that I'm not getting away from prison. It's a kind of gravity on my life, but it also could be the lens through which I think about the world. So my life became better in some ways when I embraced the fact that this is not a thing that I could run from it. The past has given Dwayne Betts something valuable, even enviable, a mission first five prisons I was at, we didn't have a library at all. He started a nonprofit called Freedom Reads that designs, builds, and places mobile libraries in prison housing units. That's about why we make the decisions we make, so the, the biases that we have. So you read most of these books that you donated in here? I read a bunch of them. What does it mean if you put this library in the housing unit? 
so that every time they look out of that cell, they're not just seeing the desperation and frustration and another bit of monotony. We finished this piece for you. This looks so beautiful. <laughs> is that the walnut? That is wal yeah. it's black walnut, yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. Look at that. Betts has thought out every aspect of the libraries. Not just the books, but also the reclaimed wood that will hold them. Oh, <laughs> this is fantastic. You're seeing your friend go to there and grab books. Now you're like, what? What was you reading? Now you got a different conversation because the conversation is not just what was on TV or who won a space game. But now we just added another one. And, and the other conversation is definitely going to have light in it. Peace. Juvie Fetz. Dwayne Betts lives his life as an argument for second chances. Can't get right. Who nicknames that child can't get right? At a recent rehearsal for his show that he now performs in prisons, he is surrounded by paper kites made from clothing once worn by prison inmates. Out of everything, I think this is probably like the most personal work. This is like sweat in this, you know, it's like blood in this. It's like, like years, it's like a decade of living. Some of the clothing came from inmates Betts had served time with and then later helped get parole. How is it really possible for me to imagine forgetting the people that I spent puberty with, that I spent my early 20s with, people who wrote me letters when I was going through college, people who would get my book in the prison library and be like, Shahi, we got your book. It's Dwayne's drive, despite his past, this piece, take it. that Therese Betts hopes will be an example for their sons, 14-year-old Makai and 10-year-old Miles. I think that's one of the things that I love about him, just because he can show our children the tenacity and to always have that drive and persevere. And life is hard for all of us for a lot of different reasons. And you can still be the person you want to be, despite all of those obstacles. This past fall, Betts got a mysterious phone call informing him that he had won a MacArthur Fellowship that comes with a $625,000 grant and a new word to describe him, genius. It didn't really go to his head because, like, it wasn't like he just realized, oh, I'm a genius now, because, like, he already knew that. In fact, Reginald Dwayne Betts says the fellowship says far more about the people who surround him. I love the MacArthur piece, but more than it affirming my healthy ego, I think it, it, it affirms the faith that a lot of folks had in me when they backed me when everybody else was saying no. Therese has to know that it mattered when we met like 20 years ago. You know, I've done all of this, not to make you love me, but to be like, I was worthy of the love you gave me. You may have noticed our online feature, The Book Report, a monthly look at some of the best newly released books. This weekend, with plenty of summer days yet to come, we decided to share some must-read picks. Here's Washington Post book critic Ron Charles. As temperatures heat up and you start thinking about books for summer reading, here are a few suggestions to check out. The Latecomer by Jean Hanf Korolitz is a wicked comic novel about triplets conceived through in vitro fertilization. As these three spoiled children grow up, competing with and sniping at each other, Korolitz's family epic tears through modern art, liberal education, political correctness, international terrorism, and American spirituality, all while delivering one explosive surprise after another. 
Trust by Hernan Diaz takes us back to the Roaring Twenties for a fascinating look at one of the richest men in the world. Or make that four looks, because Trust is actually a quartet of conflicting stories about a young stock trader whose financial intuition seems almost supernatural. Eventually, his wealth becomes so vast that he imagines he can afford to control exactly how the public remembers him. Thirty years ago, a girl named Tracy Flick campaigned for student body president with disastrous results. Tom Parada told that story in his witty novel, Election, and Reese Witherspoon immortalized the young candidate in the movie with Matthew Broderick. Now, in Parada's new novel, Tracy Flick Can't Win, Tracy is a vice principal, up for the top job as head of school. She's the best candidate. She deserves it. What could possibly go wrong? During his remarkable career, left fielder Ricky Henderson stole more bases and scored more runs than any other major league baseball player. He's the subject of Howard Bryant's new biography, Ricky, the life and legend of an American original. It's the story of a young man who grew up in segregated Oakland, California, charged into a sport still clinging to its racist past and changed the game forever. For these and other suggestions about what to read this summer, contact your librarian or local bookseller. That's it for the book report. Until next time, read on. Thank you for listening. Please join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.